briefly for that. Father God, we thank you that this morning we come to your word expecting for you again to speak to us. We know that it's right, Lord, that we live lives that respond to all that you've done for us in in praise as we're encouraged to do in this psalm. But Lord, help us now as we reflect upon uh, your graciousness, which drives that, that understanding in our hearts, in our minds of just how good you are to us and all that you've given to us that leads us to a place of praise. Lord, I just pray that you might um, help that um, really come to life within us, Lord, as, as we look at these words. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you might um, speak through me now uh, to us this morning. You might do the work that you would want to do within us and shape us and mould us to be uh, your faithful uh, witnesses in the world in which you've placed us. And for your glory and our good, we ask it. Amen. Well, I, I wonder if you've ever experienced a time in which uh, a celebration has somewhat overtook the source of the celebration that you were there for. I've got, if I can get it up here on the screen, the I've got some pictures of the celebration of the 2500th year <laughs> anniversary of the Persian Empire. And they threw a, a four-day sort of celebration in 1971 to sort of recognise this. Uh, and there's just a few pictures. Here's a picture of the line of sort of royalty um, and presidents uh, and princes, princesses who were invited. It's been called uh, the most expensive uh, party ever thrown. Here's just one section of the main sort of banqueting tent. And here's some of the tent city that they'd constructed. It was held by the Shah of Iran and cost at the time around $100 million, um, sort of corrected for inflation sort of today. That would work out at around $635 million for one party. Uh, all the great and the good, as I said, were there. And they flew in 50,000 songbirds from Europe, who, of course, in the conditions couldn't survive more than sort of three days. 37 kilometers of silk were brought in, 150 kilograms of caviar, 2,700 kilograms of beef, pork, lamb. The 70 meter uh, long table there took 125 women six months to embroider the tablecloth for. Uh, and 2,500 bottles of champagne were brought in and 2,000 bottles of French wine, the most expensive party ever held and maybe the greatest example of a celebration that somewhat overtook the thing it was that you're recognizing in the first place. It might, you might be forgiven for sort of thinking as we read this psalm together that the point is, praise God. And of course, that is the outcome that David wants here. But the focus of the psalm actually is the grace of God that will lead us to praise him. That because God is gracious, so I don't have to perform and so I want to actually live a life of praise. Firstly here we see uh, David giving us this encouragement and commanded to praise God oh my soul. 
for a little bit of context about where this psalm fits. This psalm is part of book four of the psalms, that's Psalm 90 to 106. Uh, and this is shaped as a sort of response to the crisis of exile, which has been shared sort of pointedly in Psalm 89 at the end of book three. Now, book four calls the reader to consider the time prior to David's kingdom, as time of Moses, and to confess and appropriate the steadfast love of Yahweh prior to the promise to David uh, as a way to move forward in the face of the despair of exile. Psalms 101 and 102 recount the losses of defeat and exile, the loss of monarchy, temple and land, and now Psalm 103 responds with the praise hoped for in Psalm 102, so says the commentator Walter Brugeman. We're told here in the first verse here, bless the Lord, oh, my soul and all that's within me. And it means literally um, the inward parts or actually one of my favorite translations that offer was your entrails, your guts, what's really within you. All that's in me, praise God, bless his holy name. And yet I think we're forced to ask a question. Why do we sometimes struggle to praise God? Why is it that sometimes actually we can find ourselves a bit distracted or perhaps a bit demoralised or that our praise is a little bit diminished, perhaps? Sometimes it's stuff around us, isn't it? Sometimes it's the struggles and stresses of work, strains of relationships, perhaps just general suffering, responsibilities and duties that seem to take over or maybe the struggle for time management and sometimes it's the stuff inside us isn't it feelings of weariness or loneliness or stress or anxiety or anger and frustration or emptiness but either way things around us and things inside us can mean that sometimes it's a struggle to praise these are all things that we experience aren't they yet why is it that they lead us to struggle to praise god of all the things that they might cause why is it that they might cause us to struggle to praise God? Because actually underneath those sort of symptoms is a more significant cause that we've somewhere, somehow, at some point, lost sight of God's grace. And so David tells himself, bless the Lord, oh my soul. He's telling himself he may not feel like it. But he's decided to praise God. Forget not all his benefits, he tells himself and tells us. See, the problem is forgetfulness very often, isn't it? I know I find that. I forget a lot of stuff actually from my childhood. It's not because I had a bad childhood. I had a very good childhood. But I'm convinced it's been in order to fit other sort of information. Uh, some other information has been sort of pushed out. My brain has somehow prioritised certain information to keep over other bits that I lose. See, our forgetfulness is actually rarely, especially in terms of God's grace, is rarely the problem of misplacing that information, like a set of keys that we can sort of just misplace. It's about misprioritization. It's that other things can somehow take on more importance than they ought to. Sometimes it's easy for things going on around us to take on greater importance, isn't it? Because they're what we see. They're what we face 
in front of us now. And it can be hard to actually wait for fulfillment of promises of God that are not yet fully realized. Or to look to God who offers spiritual blessings that at times we might not be able to see or to touch. But the problem is forgetfulness. And David encourages himself and us by extension to remind ourselves of all of his benefits. And then from verse three uh, to four here, we get uh, three negative things that God spares us from. Three ways in which we see the benefits of God, the gifts of God, the graciousness of God worked out. He spares us from three negative things here. Firstly, verse three here, he forgives all your iniquities, all your guilt, all your blame, all the punishment you face, all the things that you are ashamed of. He forgives you. Secondly, verse three here, we're told that he heals all your diseases, all the things that might cause you pain. He heals. And thirdly, verse four here, we're told he redeems your life from the pit. All the things that might entrap you, he redeems you from. Three negative things that God spares us from that show some uh, part of his grace towards us. And of course, all of those things that God saves us from have effects on our everyday life, don't they? What do all of those things lead us to? Well, they might lead us in a number of directions. Perhaps in the face of some of those struggles, uh, we might be tempted to self-promote. We might be tempted to feel as though we're, we're facing these things that actually do bear down a, upon us somewhat here. And I need to look like I've got it together. I haven't, but I, I need to look like I've got it together to other people. And so I might put on something of a mask. I might have to try to hide some of my feelings, perhaps. I have to find ways to always try to make things seem more positive than they really are. Or perhaps I might turn to a self-righteousness. I might be driven to feel, well, I need to sort of earn the approval of God. I'm actually facing these struggles here and I'm struggling to remember that actually God has, has redeemed me and saved me from these things. So actually I feel now as though I, I need to earn my way out of them. Or perhaps I'm tempted to self-isolate somewhat. Tempted to feel... I need to keep people away so that they don't see my flaws. I need to keep people just at arm's length. I need to stay just a little bit on the fringe. I don't know that I can trust people to be real with who I am. Or perhaps I'm tempted to self-protect, to feel as though I need to save myself, I need to avoid any risk, I need to become defensive and justifying of all that I do. Or perhaps there's an element of self-harm that comes in that I need to punish myself for the shame that I feel. I don't really feel able totally to trust that God really has delivered me from shame. And, and actually, I feel that shame still on me. And I feel as though I want to punish myself for it. And that can be done in many ways, even just down to sabotaging myself. Or perhaps I resort to self-medicating. I need to find something else outside of me, outside of God, to soothe my pain. All of these things have effects on us, don't they? That sense of iniquity, of guilt, of blame, of punishment that we face, of diseases, of things that cause us pain. And that sense of being entrapped in a certain place and situation in life. But God has forgiven us. He's healed us. He's redeemed us. But we see it 
also his grace in three positive things that he gives to us. It's not just in the things he spares us from, but the things he gives to us positively. Look at verse four with me here, that he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse five, he satisfies you with good. Verse five again, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Spares you from all those negative things there, forgiving, healing, redeeming. But he also lavishes upon you these great gifts of steadfast love and mercy, satisfying you, renewing your youth. And we see all of those benefits come together most powerfully, most clearly in Jesus upon the cross, don't we? Who gives his life to pay for our sins who offers us forgiveness in the face of our uh, previously having been an enemy of God, who secures an eternal healing for us in a new earth and a renewal of our life now, who saves us from our own tendency to push self-destruct in various ways, who removes all our shame, who gives us his love and grants us new life, We experience lots of that now, and of course, even more, and all of it in the end. 2 Corinthians 4 gives us just one reminder of this here, verses 16 to 18. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's all about perspective, isn't it? He's Paul then looking to the things that are unseen, looking to the things that are to come that helps him endure the things that he is facing. It can be easy to forget all that Jesus has done for us, but when we reflect on all that he has done for us, how can we not praised so here david's encouragement it's an instruction as well as a declaration he's declaring that he will bless the lord with his soul with his innermost being but it's also an instruction to himself he's telling his soul to worship god worship is a cognitive process before an emotional outpouring that is before it gets to your heart just outpouring actually it's got to be your head telling it to do so you've got to tell yourself you've got to make yourself you've got to remind yourself or at least so as david secondly here we get to see the grace of our father god to our fathers in the past you know track record is an important thing isn't it it's why some people are just eminently more credible and worth listening to than others Um, When it comes to a global pandemic, there are some voices that are much more worth listening to than others. This is uh, Dr. Fauci, the chief medical officer of the United States or the equivalent of Chris Whitty over there. Professional, trained, experienced, great track record. And then there's some other people who are not so credible not so worth listening to their advice. There's Trump who seriously at one point did suggest injecting yourself with disinfectant as much as he tries to claim he didn't. Some people 
have the track record that means they're worth listening to. They have those skills, they have that qualification, they have that experience, they're worth believing. And then there's some people who, to put it generously to him, do not. God has a track record of his graciousness to his people that means he is trustworthy. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, we're told, verse 6. Then in verse 7, that he's made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. His graciousness is seen through the way, in part through the way he has loved and cared for and protected and provided for his people through the wilderness years, through the exodus, through that journey, uh, journey out of slavery and out of oppression and death in Egypt to new life in a new land. And that's actually how we can hope for freedom right now in what we may face is by looking to all that God has always done for his people before us. We're told here, verse eight to nine, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And we see several different aspects there, don't we, to the way in which God's grace and his love is shown for his people, both in the past and for us now in the present, that he's merciful. That is, he doesn't give us what we do deserve. The punishment, the judgment that we do deserve for our sin and our rebellion against him, he doesn't give us. He's merciful. But he's gracious. He doesn't just not give us what we do deserve. He gives us the good that we don't deserve. He's slow to anger, that is, he's, he's patient. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's full of amazing and unwavering love. He doesn't always try, he's not always telling us off. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins and iniquities, we're told here in verse 10, and it's much like verse 3 earlier on, isn't it? Rather than us face the punishment we do deserve for us, in Jesus faces it for us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, in verse 11, we're told, so great is his steadfast love. Just like verse 8 had told us, we're welcomed in, we're adopted as his children. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not only that we've avoided the penalty for sin, uh, we have by Jesus facing that, of course, on the cross. But God has also removed the shame of our sin. That it's no longer there in sight. It's no longer there to hold us down or to be held over us. It's gone. God is gracious. So I don't have to perform it means I don't have to hold on to the sort of sense of shame of having failed because it's not about my performance, but about all that Jesus has done for me and the grace of God given to me. I don't have to perform. And so I don't have to feel any longer that sense of shame at when my performance hasn't met my expectations or God's. Why does God do this? Well, verse 13 tells us, as the father shows compassion to his children, he shows compassion to those who fear him. God is gracious. And so you don't have to perform. Do you know, he doesn't love a future version of you. You know, that future version of you when you feel as though, you know, everything is sorted. He loves you. You can trust that God will be a gracious father to you because he has always been a gracious father 
to his people. He has a track record to prove it. Thirdly here, verses 15 to 19, we see eternal comfort for mere mortals. I, I wonder if you've ever been in a sort of situation where you just feel painfully out of your depth. Um, I, I have many of them. Uh, but I, I found it hard to try to illustrate this very well. And I was thinking for days, oh, you know, what illustration would be good to sort of, uh, uh, to try to sort of bring this to everyday life for people. Uh, uh, I was really struggling on this. And uh, as is my experience with, with homeschooling everything at the minute, you know, Leon was just sort of outside the office watching Peppa Pig at sort of full blast. And uh, so, you know, by extension, I'm, I'm sort of learning all this stuff from it. And actually I found there was this great episode, or at least I thought it was at the time, perhaps that's partly through me just having heard so much of it. Uh, but he's watching Peppa Pig and there's this episode where Mr. Mole, uh, has decided to build an extension to his house. Uh, here he is there with his little family. Uh, and Daddy Pig sort of gets involved. He's a bit of a kind of nosy guy anyway. I think, you know, there's a bit of talk about DIY. So thinks, oh, great, let's get in on this, you know? And so he asks, you know, well, how are you gonna sort of hold up the wall there whilst you're sort of building this extension? You're gonna put a steel lintel in there? Uh, things and uh, he says to him you know of course house extensions you know you need lots of sort of skilled uh, sort of people to help you with that plumbers electricians builders all these uh, different people so you know who are you going to have to help you I think you know daddy pig's sort of uh, angling for a little bit of a role isn't he um, and Mr Mole says well no I'm, I'm just going to do it myself uh, actually and it quickly becomes clear that uh, you know Mr Mole is completely out of his depth as he winds up just sort of digging through into next door neighbor's lounge Perhaps he really ought to have uh, employed some further help. And it dawned on me, really, that this episode of Peppa Pig was basically grand designs, but for sort of preschoolers. Because uh, in essence, this is how many grand design episodes sort of end, isn't it? That people thought, oh, how could it be so difficult? Uh, and then realise, oh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> Those people who are paid money to do that actually might know what they're doing after all. <laughs> it might not be so easy as drawing up a little sketch uh, on my desk in my spare time. Sometimes we can feel massively out of our depth. And here in this story, this character was completely out of their depth. I often wonder how Job must have felt as God said to him, answer me this one question, you know, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I hung the stars in space? Massively out of his depth as he's there, actually having to discuss wisdom with the living God. And here we have this contrast between humanity in its weakness and the amazing all-sufficiency of God, and yet his amazing love for us. And so we have this contrast, that God is gracious, so we don't have to perform. And that's really good news, because what could we really offer that would really earn anything from him? Humanity is, verse 15 here, we get these three contrasts here. Humanity is temporary. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. We're mortal. We come and we go. Humanity is secondly vulnerable. Look at verse 15 again there. That man flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. We're weak. It really actually doesn't take that much to bring down humanity. We're not as strong and as immortal as we sometimes would think we're vulnerable but thirdly we're insignificant really 
Look at verse 16. The wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. We're forgotten. Humanity is temporary. It's vulnerable. It's insignificant. But by contrast, look at verse 17 here. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting and his righteousness to children's children. You know, and that love and that righteousness isn't based on what we could earn from him. We're temporary, we're vulnerable, we're insignificant, we're mortal, we're weak, we're ultimately forgotten. But his love is from everlasting to everlasting, his righteousness to children's children. He's completely dependable. He's always loving and always righteous. We see his love and righteousness most of all in the gospel, don't we? That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning and ending in faith the righteousness of God revealed to us by him dying for us that we might be saved Christ is given to us in love that we might be made righteous God is gracious and so we don't have to perform to earn God's favor because he loves you he gives you his favor and yet you might be asking and it'd be a right question don't we need to actually do the right thing though you know don't we need to actually live out of our faith well of course we do verse 17 here we're told that his love and his righteousness are expressed here on those who fear him and in verse 18 on those who keep covenant who remember to do commands those who fear him those who keep his covenant those who do his commands so there is a call to live out of your faith isn't there there is a call to obedience but we don't do in order to become children of God we do because we are his children in much the same way if you think about a sort of uh, a marriage relationship or really any close friendship because that other person is gracious and loving and accepts you for who you are and bears with you. That's the nature of a loving relationship, isn't it? That there's a fair amount of that. Hopefully, that doesn't mean you just take advantage of that and think, well, it doesn't matter what I do then because they always love me. They're always sort of gracious and accepting and they bear with me. I think that what it tends to do for us, isn't it, is that it, it makes us think because they're like that, I do care what I do and I don't want to offend or upset them I actually want to reciprocate I, I, I want to try to do the same to be loving and accepting and bearing with them and gracious in the same way because we are children we live as children obedient of the loving father while humanity is temporary is vulnerable and insignificant verse 19 here the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules Overall, there's this contrast of the weakness of humanity, yet the all-sufficiency of God and this same God loving us always. And then lastly, we close off with these last three verses here, 20 to 22, and we see God praised in the heavens. The psalm began with David praising and encouraging us to praise God, and now it ends with the heavenly host praising him. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. You know, only when the whole cosmos is praising God, is he really being given the praise that's due to his name. 
You mighty ones who do his word, we're told here in verse 20, and obeying the voice of his word. As great as this heavenly host are, as these angels are, they submit to God's word. And this is seen in them serving him and obeying him. Verse 21 here, bless the Lord all his hosts, there's all his, all his armies of angels here, his ministers to do his will. Look at that obedience to his will and to his word. Bless the Lord, all his works, verse 22, we're told here, all that he does in the world, all of his works deserve praise and give him praise. Told that in Romans 1, verse 20, aren't we, that the invisible attributes of God, his great power is seen in creation, that they speak of his power. And we see it in all places of his dominion here, verse 22, in every corner of the globe, every realm, he's to be praised. God's grace is given freely to us, and yet it's not given for no reason. There is an expected sort of response there. It's given freely, there's not a cost to receive it, but there is an expectation of a response there, and that's of our praise of our joining with creation in praising all that God has done we don't always see that now do we but one day we will see that we read in in Philippians 2 about Jesus himself that at the name of Jesus every knee will one day bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father there will come a time where we will see the whole earth united in praising god but until that moment we're on mission to gather worshipers together there's a quote here let me see if i can get it on the screen for you here that expresses this quite well and more succinctly than I perhaps could. John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. I hope you see what he's getting at here is that the ultimate purpose of the church is not just to be on mission for mission's sake. It's not just to make disciples for the sake of more numbers, but it's because really we're seeking to gather together more worshippers. God is to be worshipped in all corners, in every place on the earth. And the end, the aim of going out in mission and sharing the good news of Jesus is that people would come to worship God. And so how do we do that? How can we praise him? Well, actually, we can and we ought to be praising him in everything that we do, not just uh in all that we do on a Sunday and not just in singing, not just in prayer, not just in reading his words, but actually in all of our life. First Corinthians 10 verse 31 tells us, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again, in Colossians 3 verse 17, very similar words. We're told whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We can do it in all of life. There was this great sort of idea that came about during the Reformation of Sola Dea Gloria, that to God alone be the glory. And the idea was that 
everything is to be done for God's glory. Everything, every act, every part of life was really to be done celebrating who God is and giving thanks to him. So that a number of uh, famous musicians at the time would write this at the bottom of their musical scores. People like uh, Bach and Handel and Grautner would put at the bottom of their scores uh, the initials SDG, Sola Dea Gloria, that everything that they produced that music for was for the worship of God through their creativity and through their work. What would it look like for all of our life, all of our work and all of what we do to be done in order to bring praise to God. So if you're finding it a struggle during COVID to praise God, that's not a surprise, by the way, is it? But then remind yourself of all God's grace to you. Let me pray and then we will uh, sing a closing song uh, together, Cornerstone. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful grace and love that you've lavished upon us. Well, thank you so much that we, we've not done anything to deserve that. And we can often be very aware that we've not really done anything to deserve it. But Lord, thank you that you have just gifted it to us. Lord, we thank you that we've seen your mercy towards us, that you've not given us the judgment and the punishment that we do deserve, but that instead that's been meted out upon your very own son in place of us. But Lord, we thank you also that you've given us all that we could never possibly deserve, all the goodness and grace and wonderful benefits of that that you just uh, lavish upon us that we could never possibly have laid claim to, Lord, you give to us. And so, Lord, we pray for your help to trust your finished work for us, that we don't have to perform to receive your love. But the Lord, out of the love that you gift to us, you might help us to live lives of praise to you, that in all that we do, we might bring praise to your glorious name. So, Lord, we pray for your help. Um, when sometimes it's challenging uh, to remind ourselves of all that you've done for us, when sometimes there are distractions and things around us, to keep our eyes fixed upon you and for our hearts to rest and to celebrate in all that you've done for us and all that you will do for us. We thank you so much for your wonderful love towards us. Holy Spirit, I pray that for each person here this morning, whatever sort of a place they're in, whatever kind of a week or a beginning of this year they've had, Lord, they would know uh, powerfully this morning your great fatherly love and affection for them, that they don't have to perform, but that they can live out of praise and celebration for all that you have done for them. Amen.